This is Christy Drutman, and you are listening to Brown Girl Green, where I interview environmental leaders and advocates about diversity and inclusion, as well as creative solutions to the climate crisis. I'm working to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. I'm recording this podcast on Ohlone land, otherwise known as the Bay Area. This is your daily reminder that we're all living on stolen land. For the first 16 minutes of this episode, I delve into some context about sustainable fashion for around 16 minutes. If you want to skip my spiel and go straight to the interview, you can skip to 16 minutes and 30 seconds. But if you want to stick around and learn more from me, stay here. And in the meantime, make sure you subscribe to the show. As the great Smash Mouth once said, my world is on fire. How about yours? (laughs) But seriously, y'all, the sky is orange. Well, it was orange a few days ago, and I was pretty scared. I was like, why does it look like 8 p.m. when it's supposed to be 7.30 in the morning? (laughs) And honestly, as much as I'm exposed to this work all the time and I'm aware of climate projections, it's like another thing to really feel it and see it and experience it at a much worse rate than I've ever witnessed since I've been on God's green earth. And anyways, I have been reflecting a lot on just the immediacy of it all that it just feels like, oh my gosh, we're in a pandemic, the wildfires, other places around the world are experiencing horrible typhoons and hurricanes and floods and the list goes on and on. And anyways, I just want to say that I feel you and see all of y'all out there are listening to this who may feel terrified right now. I mean, it's scary. And honestly, <laughs> I just try to get through it through a little bit of some humor and some joy and just trying to figure out what solutions are out there to actually address this very ginormous issue on our hands. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about one slice of the toxic chemical pie that is driving the climate crisis, and that is the fashion industry. Today, we are going to be talking about the concept of sustainable fashion. So for listeners who may not know, sustainable fashion is basically like fashion, but minus the exploited labor, tons of chemicals, and water or land pollution. Basically, the ugly stuff. Sustainable fashion, in theory, is supposed to be this new, hip, trendy, ethical way to create fashion that not only benefits the planet, but also benefits the labor that goes into the products that are made. And I didn't really know much about sustainable fashion until I got to college, but that was when people were saying like, oh, sustainable fashion, that's like going secondhand or vintage or whatever they were referring to, talking about being more eco-friendly by buying less things or buying used things. And I was like, oh. Well, I know all about growing up in my household. My mom was super frugal. She was like, we're not going to spend a ton of money on brand new stuff here and there. She obviously loved to treat us and wanted us to look hella cute. But overall, it was mainly like, yeah, let's save money. Let's not overextend ourselves, overspend money on things that we don't need. And 
basically, I just grew accustomed to going to thrift stores before, you know, Macklemore made it cool. And even more so, I was guilty, but felt no shame for it, for stealing all of my sister's secondhand clothes. So I would sneak into their closets, steal their clothing. They probably are going to hate me once they listen to this episode, but I really pride myself on it. I had hella cute outfits that I didn't really need to tell anyone where I got them from. And it was like having a brand new wardrobe. And then when my sisters actually did, you know, legally, I guess you could say, give me their hand-me-downs, I was even more stoked. Cause I was like, oh, I don't even have to sneak around. I just get free old clothes thrown at me. And honestly, it was shameless. I didn't, when I was younger, I didn't view that as like a bad thing. It was like, oh, this is really cool. And it's an easy way for my mom to not have to spend more money. And I know it made my mom happy too. So when I was learning about sustainable fashion that, you know, a lot of these things around buying secondhand and vintage, et cetera, was like the in thing. It was like, oh, that's like what I was doing as a kid. But I remember that there was also like some shame, at least when I was younger, like before all the, you know, before it became all trendy, like when I was growing up, it was, it was very much about fast fashion. It was about buying nice things from Zara, Forever 21, H&M, dressing cute, showing off at school. And I remember it just like, not fitting in in that way like I think people could tell that I was wearing some hand-me-downs and I did feel embarrassed and I did feel ashamed of it because I didn't feel like I was on top of my game when it came to how I was dressing and I mean yeah I remember the iconic Lizzie McGuire episode where she was so worried about being accused of being an outfit repeater that she went out of her way to avoid her mom's bargain base pants which ended up being actually the pants that everyone complimented her on anyways and she was hella cute but besides the point there's a big stigma in our society around buying secondhand even though now there's definitely a huge upswing and more people are caring about you know shopping ethically creatively expressing themselves through secondhand or vintage clothing which is awesome but yeah when I was younger that was definitely not the case and I think You know, even in my 20s now, like there's things like Fashion Nova and Boohoo and a lot of different companies, Topshop, a lot of different companies that are across the board where you just feel like, oh, I'm not on top of my aesthetic or my look like this is supposed to be my prime. I'm in my mid 20s and this is how I'm supposed to look. Fashion is a really core part of our culture. It's a really core part of human society and the ways in which we express ourselves our identities how we carry ourselves to the world like I'm not going to negate fashion as much as people are like oh it's so materialistic and whatever it's like well there's also an art form to it and it's also a really special and important way for people to relate to each other and relate to their own surroundings so I don't view fashion as just this like you know let me just grab and buy this thing, wear it, look cute, and throw it away. But unfortunately, although there is, like, what I was saying, this, like, beautiful, artistic, like, passionate, connected feeling around fashion, the fast fashion world is kind of the antithesis of that. It's more like, okay, you can love this item for maybe three or four months or less than that, and then the trend is going to end or that look is not going to be in style anymore and you need to throw it out. And a lot of these stores that are in the mainstream that 
promote and sell fast fashion understand this and make clothing that is cheap, it's disposable, it's definitely something that you know, you're going to wear once or twice. And most of the time, most people are ending up throwing their clothing in landfills. Well, in the trash, it ends up in a landfill. And the thing is, though, that most people think that that's normal or like, don't give it a second thought. They're like, well, I need to wear clothing that makes me feel good, makes me feel stylish. And that means I need to buy more things. I need to cycle it out. And It's a thing that I don't think is talked about enough in our society is that so many people are just constantly consuming and giving into this throwaway culture and it's really messing up the environment. And so I really wanted to focus this week's episode on sustainable fashion because it is this counter movement that's trying to challenge that. And just to throw some stats at you about why fast fashion sucks and just like the the UN Alliance on Sustainable Fashion, the fashion industry as a whole accounts for about 10% of global carbon emissions due to the energy used during its production, manufacturing, and transportation of millions of garments purchased each year. And within a lot of this clothing, that's usually fast fashion, synthetic fibers such as polyester, acrylic, nylon, etc. are used in the majority of our clothes. And these materials are derived from fossil fuels, which makes production much more energy intensive than with natural fibers like hemp, for example. Additionally, the fashion industry produces 20% of global wastewater that is released downstream, mostly in countries located in the global south. So a lot of the clothing that is produced is produced in countries in the global south countries where workers are paid barely anything to uh, make clothes that get shipped to the west that are then consumed and thrown away that end up in landfills all over the world and typically are going to end up polluting those same communities that produce those clothes in the first place pretty messed up and even worse than that with like how much energy and toxic chemicals and materials go in to the fashion that we consume and buy, companies like H&M can rack up billions of dollars in unsold clothes that will also most likely end up in landfills. These clothes are not made out of materials that will naturally decompose. So then you get a bunch of dead clothes leaking stinky chemicals out into the environment for hundreds and hundreds of years. So in addition to the harmful environmental impacts of the fashion industry. We also have to address the painful and dark reality of the exploited labor that also goes into these products. To keep margins as high as possible, brands outsource production to companies all over the world in search of cheap labor. This can lead to a very sketchy supply chain where workers' rights are at at the the bottom bottom of the the barrel for companies trying to hit their bottom line to make a profit. This was most evident in 2013 during the collapse of the Rana Plaza garment factory in Bangladesh that killed more than 1,100 workers and injured over 2,500. Out of the 29 brands like Walmart and Mango, which were identified as using products from these factories, only nine of those companies attended meetings to agree on providing compensation for the victims. Just sit with that. Like... These companies know what they're doing to workers 
and still are not held accountable for the actions that are caused by their supply chains. And even more so, companies even here in the U.S. don't even pay their workers a living wage. So the issue is so deep and so broad from both a labor standpoint to an environmental standpoint that the fashion industry has a lot of issues that need to be addressed. And so now we need to talk about sustainable fashion. So sustainable fashion is, in theory, supposed to be the opposite of that. It's like, let's be ethical in our supply chain. Let's be transparent. Let's talk about the materials that go into our pieces, eliminate toxic chemicals, and really think about the lifespan of a piece of clothing. I thought sustainable fashion is a really interesting movement because not only does it talk about buying secondhand, buying less items, like we can can now with secondhand September, but also, you know, scales up. Now we have like really bougie, sustainable fashion brands that are really trying to compete with these major fashion labels who are really trying to push the limit on the mainstream of what is possible in the fashion industry, which I think is really cool because we need people at all different levels from the mom and pop shop up to, you know, global retailers who are taking these issues to heart that we can't afford to have a fashion industry that is constantly exploiting both labor and exploiting the earth. And so I really wanted to have this episode cover this topic because I find it really important. The millions of ads we're fed to consume and to look cute and to look like a snack and to live our best life. We have to think about the balance between how can we feel both good about ourselves, actually have a more healthy and meaningful relationship with the items we own and consume, and also care about the people and the cycles involved with creating said items. So... My goal of this episode was really to try to start a conversation that can get you all thinking about where do your clothes come from, what are they made of, who made them, and what are some ways that they can be produced better, and what is your role as a consumer within that. And more so from an even broader level with the sustainable fashion movement, as great as it is, and although I really want to toot its horn, Hong Kong, at the end of the day, sustainable fashion still is pretty inaccessible to different body sizes, to different ethnicities, to people from low-income backgrounds who may not be able to afford a very sustainable luxury brand. There's a lot of gaps in accessibility around reaching this utopia of ethical and sustainable fashion. So I'm not here to be like, sustainable fashion is totally flawless and perfect. Like, no, it actually has a lot of issues itself. But at least in that space, there's more of a bridge where the companies that care about sustainable fashion at least already have a baseline to care about people, to care about the planet, to be pressed a bit more about social justice, racial justice issues, to actually address the accessibility around the work that they do. Because ironically right now, fast fashion is winning that game, at least in terms of making things accessible to people who may not be able to afford sustainable brands. And even some secondhand shops can be kind of expensive. So it's like, you have to find this middle ground of like, okay, how do we just address our relationship with clothes, but also considering people 
like average everyday people on the ground who want to look cute, want to have access, but also want to do the right thing based on where they're putting their money. And so I am really excited to delve into the complexities of this and have you all think about that during this episode because it is a complex matter. I mean, it's not going to shift overnight, but I think that the sustainable fashion movement, if there were more tweaks with diversity and inclusion and with addressing the inaccessibility, I mean, man, there's a lot we could do there. In this episode, I I interview interview Samada, a British-born Ghanaian fashion designer, author, and journalist who is best known for her role as global campaign director and founder of Red Carpet Green Dress, a campaign that is pushing to showcase ethical fashion on the Oscars red carpet. She is also an award-winning women's wear designer whose work in the fields of fashion and sustainability have received coverage from BBC Radio One Extra, Essence, ITV's This Morning, E! Entertainment, Women's Wear Daily, Elle, InStyle, Essence, Refinery29, and Red Magazine. I am so excited for you all to listen to this very insightful discussion where this brilliant, woman just lays out all the important details around her journey as a black entrepreneur in the sustainable fashion world and what steps you can take to address this issue inside and outside of your wardrobe. Take a listen. I am super excited for today's guest who will be talking to us about sustainable fashion and bringing more diverse voices to the table. And I would love for her to introduce herself. So go ahead, Samara. Hello, good evening, everyone from here in London. My name's Samata, and I am the CEO of Red Carpet Women-Led Organization, championing sustainable fashion. And I'm just really excited to be here this evening and to speak with our incredible host and just to have a really hopefully engaging chat about something I feel very passionately about. <laughs> Amazing. And just for background context, so for people I, who don't know anything uh, about sustainable fashion, mm. could you, in your own words, describe what sustainable fashion is? It's weird. We had an event earlier this year and we had um, Tyrese Ty- there. And, and um, he said, you know... You've got to do what works for you. And it was just like, yes, you do. When it comes to sustainable fashion, I feel like pick your champion, you know, pick the thing that feels comfortable to you. That could be that you commit to saying, I'm going to buck the high street trends. I'm going to buck the whole like buying fast fashion brands on a regular basis. And I'm going to go research some independent brands, like independent local boutiques, independent local stores, independent companies that are doing things like like literally on a smaller scale and are really really investing in themselves I'm going to choose to back some independent brands independent brands are a huge part of the sustainable fashion conversation most of the time they know like they're sourcing their own material they know the supply chain like I prefer finding unique stuff than getting stuff that's just mass made anyway or you could say like I'm going to be doing more like vintage stuff I'm going to be customizing my pieces if my clothing like tears I'm going to mend it instead of just dashing it out the window like you know there's these different things that you could do that just a like prolong the life of your clothes Mm. and then when you're buying new clothes you're a bit more considerate and here's the thing that like lots of people aren't going to talk about but it's a fact Mm. when When you're you're investing in fast fashion and when I say that I mean like if you're buying 
um, oh, yes. like a top that costs you three pounds. Mm-hmm. It's forget about if you don't care about like the supply chain and the people that yeah. had to make that and get paid like ten p a week. Yeah. The fact is that when you look inside that label, the process to make that clothing is really harmful to your body. The mm. dyes, the chemicals, like this stuff is seeping off into our endocrine systems and it's actually kind of causing imbalances, chemical imbalances. It's doing things like, I mean, it's actually very worrying. There was a lot of studies, a study done by Greenpeace that showed that some of the toxic dyes used in synthetic fast fashion is carcinogenic because it's just so cheap. Mm-hmm. It's not made to last. like, And that's what I think people are being kind of fooled. It's called design obsolescence when you design something to fall apart. You design it so people need to buy another one after they've worn it once or twice. So I think I say that just to say that, like, back yourself a bit. Like, it's your body. Mm. It's your personal environment in a way. Um, And just maybe analyze what you want to be putting on it a bit more. You know, I know it's hard because sustainable fashion does not cater to all the right body sizes just yet. It doesn't cater to everybody on their different like socioeconomic, like who's making different amounts of money. Yeah, It's not like it's not accessible to everyone just yet, but there is some small thing that you can do. Choose that and just do that's your thing and be proud of that. You know, that's enough. Yes. I love that. I think people get so overwhelmed that it's like, I can't intervene in the supply chain. So what am I going to even do? And it's like, well, it's just like, you need to start with figuring out like, what are your consumption patterns? Like, who are you putting your money into? Yes. How can you just like take better steps? Exactly. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Like, um, just, just do what works for you. Um, And just that's enough. Like we can't keep putting pressure on people to be these kind of superheroes, you know, it's just do what works for you. That's okay. That's okay. Yes. Oh, I love that. I'm still new to it. I kind of got introduced to it about a year ago. Like I think I was looking at the hashtag sustainable fashion and I found that you were featured on a panel and I saw that all the panel were not people of color except for you. And I was like so drawn to your presence. And I was like, I need to just slide into her DMs. You don't hit her up because that's like how Brown Girl Green works. I just slide into the DMs. I love and it. I was like, and I and I just was like, would you be down to be on my show? And then I you were like, it. I'm so down. And I was like, what? I and mean, then, <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is crazy. Uh, I love so. hearing from you. Like I, like I said, it's just when you've been operating in this space for so long, you've been like quite an isolated figure from the beginning. And you suddenly start discovering like these pockets of people that look like you and think like you and just have the same concerns that you have. Um, it's just the most warming feeling because you feel so alone at the beginning so when you reached out to me and I'm not sure which panel it was but I was on another one which panel was it by the way it was I think it was I'm forgetting the name was of it, it. The sustainable fashion forum sustainable was, fashion forum yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but when you get to join these different discussions you just start feeling like finally this sense of belonging um that you know, it's very hard to, to explain, but it feels really good. So yeah, I was straight on this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and I am so excited for you all to get to know her more through this episode because she's absolutely brilliant and Aww. learning about her was like super inspiring. So I'm super Aww, excited. That's for this. Sweet. I hope I don't let you guys down. <laughs> no, you definitely won't. So, anyone- to kick it off, 
Where do you see your work in sustainable fashion fit into the greater environmental movement? I mean, I love this. I love this question because what drives me personally is what I want to create. Um, when we talk about the environmental movement, I think about all the different factions in there. You've got people that are really moving to tackle environmental impact on land, on water. Um, got people who are championing fair right and fair trade and workers. And, you know, there's so many different factions and sectors within this industry. And it can feel overwhelming to say like, well, where do we fit in? Like, it's so big. But for me personally, first of all, I really want to be part of creating like a more equitable and fair industry. One of the things I think I find most disheartening about the fashion industry is that there's just, it's not equitable, it's not fair. You have an invisible mass. And for example, um, that could be the garment workers um, in countries such as Bangladesh or Myanmar who are, in my opinion, virtually invisible, but who are moving the industry en masse. They're so powerful. The work they do holds up the industry. And so the mm -hmm. fact that they don't often have a voice or we don't often see them, I find that unfair. So part of mm -hmm. what I want to do is be part of creating something that creates visibility for those invisible people. Um, and I think even the environmental impact side of things, I mean, no one can really argue about the impact that the fashion industry has on the planet. Like the statistics mm -hmm. are overwhelming and I don't really like banging on about them because it's just like, oh yeah, we use like 98 million tons of non-renewable resources. It's like, what yeah. do you want someone to do with that kind of figure? You know, yeah. like just lie yeah. in bed and rock anxiously. <laughs> it's just... Like, what do you want me to do with that? Yeah. So instead of focusing on like the scale of the impact, I just think what I want to do is be part of, in my way, reducing that. And with Red Carpet mm -hmm. Green Dress, it's things like working with Greenpeace to highlight like how textiles are being dyed, the impact that those dyes are having on the local waterways. And with each of our gowns at the Oscars, we really use it as a platform to shine a beacon out there. It's a message. Mm -hmm. And it's saying, look, this is something we need to be paying attention to, like the dyes, the textiles, the recycling, the upcycling. So for us, fitting in is really using our work to give examples about what needs to change. Yeah. Um, so that's like another thing for me. Um, and I'd probably say the other element of like what I see our work fitting in is just this environmental movement. It needs more female leaders. I'm sorry, but it does. Yeah. You know, in that's what it needs. Like when yeah. I see where do we fit in, it's like we're a women-led global change-making organization. You know, I'm a female CEO, yeah. the founder's CEO, we have a female team. And so where we fit in is like creating more spaces for women who are leading in this space. And I'm not being funny, but like flesh it, fleshing it out. And I say color it, coloring it in because like my mainstream champions, like my own, the only mainstream champions I'm seeing right now is like Emma Watson. And it's, you know, she doesn't necessarily represent like the, the just the nuances and the range of women mm. working in this space like we need to celebrate other heroes you know like whether it's a Dominique Drakeford or Laurie Lee Jones like let's kind of broaden that out a bit so there's yeah. a few things I'm trying to champion but um those are just probably some of the things that you know I feel I have the power to do something about you know <laughs> without yeah. feeling overwhelmed <laughs> no I think I think that's awesome I oh thank you 
I read your op-ed on the intersection of culture and sustainability in Japan and Ghana. Mm. When you see the intersections of fashion and culture, what do you notice? And mm. how does that space inspire you in the work that you produce? <laughs> this is a big question. Um, I think I realized, and it's so silly for me to say this out loud, like it seems like duh, but I realized that um, your culture and where you're from has its own inherent sustainability. And mm. it's like when you recognize that, it grounds you and you stop looking for the acceptance and the acknowledgement from the other sector that you're speaking to. So, for example, being a British-born Ghanaian, I've been working in the Western fashion world for so long and I've kind of almost looked to that industry for acknowledgement of my work or for, like the, for the classifications and the definitions of my work. And so when I was reflecting, I went to Ghana for some kind of, um, we had, unfortunately, we had two funerals. But when I was there, I really started to notice that so much of the work I'm doing in this space is already inherently happening in Ghana. So first of all, the first thing I noticed is, you know, other parts of the world, when I say that, I mean, outside of the UK, where I am, right, or the UK and America aren't innovative and don't bring ideas mm -hmm. to the forefront. But I'm just saying, when you start unpacking things, you start realizing that, hey, you know, the sources of a lot of ideas are so far spread and so much like more wide reaching than I thought. So one example is I remember reading about this incredible um, mm. man called Ziriab, who basically mm. like, you know, he came the concept of changing clothes for the seasons um, and this whole kind of fashion cycle where we look at spring summer autumn winter like in morocco he's credited for basically shaping like their fashion calendar in a way which i you know that kind of blew my mind or wow. you know like so impressed by other parts of the world um, and it gives you pride and then like even with Ghana like I started to research and I found out about like Aradinkra which is like a sacred cloth right but it has all of these symbols and these symbols all talk about reverence for the environment and respecting the planet and investing in quality and the modern version is you've got Vivian Westwood saying, buy well, choose well, make it last, right? <laughs> yeah. Northern Ghana, they've got like these symbols that say the same thing. Wow. Um, so that really kind of made me feel inspired and humbled. And it just um, makes you, it makes you want to learn more about the world. You see that culture and fashion, um, unfortunately, a common theme that you see is that, um, is that it's often um, a power that's uh, The more powerful element with the bigger platform and the wider reach is often credited for these original ideas um, mm -hmm. as opposed to like the original source. So that's another thing I noticed and like that, that struggle for um, acknowledgement or for the correct credits and correct sources is just a repeating issue that I think, you know, we need to really really tackle it because it's yeah. it's um to, to entire economies and entire groups so you know there were just a few things I noticed but it was it was enlightening wow yeah I feel like there's a lot of people <laughs> that are like oh these people are backwards yes. in the global south because uh, they live in poverty Speak, and they're yeah. underinvested in. So they don't know what it means to be environmentally friendly or to be sustainable. And <laughs> yeah, and then, and then we're like, oh, this is a great idea. But it's like they've been doing that because they understand totally. how, how to manage their resources. Can you imagine, like, 
it, yeah. you've just hit the nail on the head like it gives yeah. me goosebumps hearing you like say that back because that's exactly how I feel yeah. it's like it's I think it's a thing I've spoken about recently that I feel quite passionately about there's a couple of things at play here first of all it's we can't act like it's um it's not like a level playing field in the sense that the way um, that we talk about designs or communities or um other kind of playing field the language yeah. we use is different we use we use versus mm -hmm. immigrant i have mm -hmm. friends who are like oh i'm being an expat in um so like, oh so you're being an immigrant because you're using language that you feel um position in a more superior mm. um, i would say refined and polished position you're saying wow. expat and you're assigning immigrant to other groups of people because mm -hmm. it creates a, like a distance between you and them but you're both doing the same thing you're going to another country you're going to another wow. place to try and better your life to try and give yourself an opportunity that you can't otherwise maybe get where you're originally from and language is just a, another way that people create space between the same situations you know you'll hear like um couture even couture mm -hmm. if you think about what couture is it's about like the time that's spent on couture pieces the quality that is you know the quality of the textiles all of that is very 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 true however mm -hmm. if you go part to part some parts of let's say india and you go and watch them bead a dress I mean, that is couture. That is, to me, the same thing. And I think when we start talking about things in a way that puts people on equal playing fields, and when we pay attention to when language or visual stuff is used to elevate some groups and depress other groups. Another example, like if you think about Yves Saint Laurent, so mm -hmm. technically, he's an Algerian-born designer. So technically, he's an African designer. If you look at how African designers talked about generally, right? They'd be like, oh, he's yeah. an African designer. Forget the fact that Africa's got 54 countries. Like, <laughs> let's just ignore that. Yeah? Just Africa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. Okay, so I guess we could just say European for, um, for like, um, Prada. Yeah, just European. Like, not Italian, <laughs> European. Okay, so, like, this is what I mean. It's like these subtle things that, interesting all all play a role in yeah. how we view cultures and their input in the sustainable dialogue i think it's important to just like tackle this stuff um yeah. and, and and the reason i think it's important to do it is because it's just to assimilate within these mm -hmm. communities people feel the pressure to assimilate they, they feel, feel the pressure of being othered and depressed as a yeah. group so therefore they're like aspiring to be this other thing in ghana we see it because instead of like focusing on our traditional woven cloths which is such high quality mm -hmm. you're seeing a flooding of the market with mm -hmm. kind of counterfeits um, different, different parts of the world because it's mm -hmm. cheaper and the fast fashion models taking roots there Mm -hmm. And and I we, we need to knock that down. Like we need to reinforce cultures and communities to have pride in yeah. themselves, you know, already. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. There's so much self-hatred or just not even self-hatred, it's like rooted in like colonial mm -hmm. colonial yes. mentality of just like, yeah, like the Western consumption of goods, like we need to embrace that in order to feel like we're advancing when it's like no, they're just taking the same ideas from you. Yeah, and yeah. just packaging it differently. Um, yeah. And 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 that's why I think it's an unfair system because if you think like another example is like cotton. So yeah. cotton is like the second largest export in um, Tanzania, but yeah. they don't produce textiles there. 
So you get the raw cotton that's exported to, let's say, I don't know, China. Majority, actually, they've got a big trade situation with China. So they export the cotton to China. It's processed into a finished good there. And then it's brought back to Tanzania. And, and then they have to buy their own cotton for three times the price. So it's like there's also systems that make it really difficult for these really resource-rich countries to thrive and be sustainable because of like these unfair situations they're in um, mm. as it is like it's an unfair situation they aren't less than they're you just know? in a really yeah 100% <sighs> yes <laughs> I agree I mean I see the same thing in the Philippines like everyone's like I want my fake Gucci but yeah. it's like but it's like but you have like literally indigenous people making beautiful hand-woven tapestries right what about so that? Exactly. <laughs> so incredibly. And, you know, my dream, if I was going to like talk to you about like my dream, so obviously I'm in the UK and um, in, in Ghana and I, I, you know, I love the world. I want to travel, but it would be so cool to see um, even look about like um, newership in mm -hmm. other parts of the world. There's always this visual of like, buy a man of this and da da da, da but teach him how to do it. And, and it's like, can we stop assuming that every single individual that's working or existing in these uh, countries wants to be a stall? Mm. They actually, some people want to be entrepreneurs or CEOs of conglomerates. Like, we need to build those conglomerates in other mm. countries and not just look at these small, 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 small investments. We need to stop thinking micro. We need to think macro for other countries because why can't we have our own mm -hmm. um, equivalent of like a top shop? Not a top shop because I'm not really into fast fashion myself, but I'm not knocking anyone who is. All I'm saying is like these big global brands, like I'd love to see them emerging from other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And to do that, they need macro finance. They need you to respect them and give them the big bucks, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Invest. <Wow. laughs> But that's, that's a whole other thing. A whole other thing, but that's like so brilliant. I love that. And this leads into yeah. my next question anyways, yeah. is that I noticed that you have a three-part series on how to tie a head wrap among your other amazing tutorials. <laughs> uh, what do you think about fashion as a teaching tool? And what are some of the life lessons that you've personally gained from fashion? Yeah. So the, the head wrap, um, I love my head wraps. I mean, sometimes um, I wear them if I'm having a bad hair day, I wear them um, because I just feel quite regal in them. You know, in Ghana, like um, big head wraps are a sign of celebration and just like, you know, the bigger the head wrap, the closer to God, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's a big deal, you know? So um, yeah. a few people kept asking me about them and, and just, just as fun, I was like, let me just do a couple of tutorials and they kind of just, fell to the wayside but I'm hoping to do some more of those because I enjoyed it but but for me fashion um, is a teaching tool I think it teaches us about ourselves and our identity how we see ourselves and I think it teaches us about other people as well just as when you look at someone's clothing you just learn so much about them as a person and even the people who think that that isn't the case that's often even more the case um it's like that it's scene like from the devil wears prada <laughs> where she's like oh so you think that this doesn't relate to you and then she yes. like just breaks it all down yes. the clothing um, is a choice that we all make every day and i think you know it's a teaching tool when you take away people's freedom to choose what they want to wear and how they want to express yourself then you really can see how much of an impact it has on somebody um, i think it also teaches us like 
political lessons. It teaches us spiritual lessons. I have friends who are Muslim and the hijab is a, has a spiritual significance, but it, you technically classify it as a piece of apparel, you know? Um, that whole conversation and what they go through because of what is essentially a piece of cloth that they are choosing to wear in a certain manner for a religious reason mm-hmm. is is it's all the education you need to know about how garments and cloth can impact and i think it's insane that somebody's choice to to dress modestly within their own space of belief should put them in a position where they don't even feel safe so to say that it can't teach us something about ourselves and other people like is is crazy but the other thing is uh, the political side of it like you could go the obvious route and think about things like the black panther and their uniforms but like the other years like, ago my friend invited me to a screening of this film called zoot suit have you seen it i have it oh my gosh tell it's me just, more i need to know okay so zoot is spelt like z-o-o-t okay and basically i was just like completely blown away i didn't realize that throughout history there's always been some sort of hoodie so like you know in the states right now it's the hood and it's like mm-hmm. if you're wearing like it's just this ridiculous symbol of whatever yeah um, but like in the 40s you had like latin americans that would wear the zoot suit and it was kind of like high-waisted wide-legged and then tight cuffed at the bottom like pegged trousers if you think about like let's like malcolm x he wore them you know like quite wide shoulders draped mm-hmm. in it was a really striking silhouette like wide lapels and shoulders But this entire community, Latin American, so African, Italian, Filipino, they were basically criminalized for wearing this suit and frequently attacked. Um, And at one point, you even had like an L.A. city councilman who basically said that the zoot suit is a new symbol of hooliganism. Um, And this is just clothing, right? Um, So just the fact that clothing can be a political thing that aggravates people so much you can learn a lot from clothing so I could really like deep dive but I just think it teach us so much about um, identity and and all kinds of things <laughs> do you feel like you have always been passionate about fashion or like what were some of the lessons that really like pulled you in and made you want to mm. go deeper into the field I think for me fashion is really about carving my own unique identity you know I'm I think I just grew up wanting to be able to I wouldn't say stand out but just be a bit different you know and I would just take clothing and customize it and just do something different to it it was just this desire to feel like I was expressing myself differently I know I've used the word different so many times but it's just how I feel no I love it I love it (laughs) oh wait should I say it again different so (laughs) that (laughs) so that was like the beginning thing but then I got pulled into the industry and sustainability just because I mean ultimately I had a clothing label it was so difficult but I did it I kind of had a I had um, a situation where I kind of had a fire and I lost all of my stuff And so I stopped designing and I just thought, well, if that's not a sign that I shouldn't be doing this, what is? And then at the end of the whole year, so I'd spent a whole year not designing. And at the end of the year, I just had been given a sketchbook for Christmas by my mum. And I just thought, oh, I haven't designed for like a year. I'm going to just draw a dress. So I drew a dress, one dress in the sketchbook. And then two days later, I went on to Vogue and I saw this question and it said, can you design a dress for the red carpet with a sustainable (laughs) twist? And I'm like, it's seriously like... I literally like tore that one page of the book out because 
if you've ever had like a fire or something it's like you lose so much stuff that yeah you know I literally for that whole year I just was so down I lost so much weight I was just I just didn't even know I thought it was some bad sign I'm not supposed to be doing this right (laughs) so anyway I took this sketch and I took a picture of it I scanned it I uploaded it and it was an entry fee and I paid the fee and I literally entered it like 23.59, like one minute to midnight before it closed. Like I was just like really battling with myself. Like, why am I doing this? And I entered it. And then like a week later, like Susie Amos Cameron calls me and she's like, you've won this contest. Right. I'm telling you, and I had like 11 days to make the dress, learn about sustainable fashion because trust me, I just entered the sketch and I was like, yeah, I'm going to make it with this fabric that's sustainable. I didn't really know. She was like, I want you to come over and talk about it. And I was just like, ah, so I had a crash course in sustainability. Like, okay. I was like reading all these books and like sewing my dress on the plane. It was just a mess. It was a mess. But that's like, and then I just got pulled into sustainability. And before you knew it, I was just so into it. I was so into it. I was like, this is my space. Like it's fashion with soul you know yeah so yeah that's how it started that is such a cool story I love that <laughs> a lot wow that is the hustle that is a hustle with a honestly like, I'm from the universe with a dash of like I'm just gonna like say screw it I'm gonna believe in myself that's yeah. what we like. we like this stuff and uh my next question is on the red carpet green dress website I also found that you all said, we believe that diversity should be the standard, not the exception. Yeah. Which snaps to that. I love <laughs> that so much. What, what's the value that you find in diversity and working with a diverse group of people? Yeah, so I think that's a really, really good question. But I guess I always just get, I get so heartbroken that it's something we still have to talk about, you know, because... When you walk out, like not right now, no one's walking out on the street, right? <laughs> but when we're allowed to <laughs> go out again yeah. and you walk down the street, like what do the people look like? You know, like depending on where you live, obviously, but where I am in Los Angeles normally and in London, if I walk down the street, I see people from all different, like from all parts of the world, yeah. all different body shapes, heights, everything. And I think it's the weirdest thing in the world that you will walk through the real world on your way to work and then you will go into work and you're in this space that's like a twilight zone and everybody looks the same. <laughs> Don't you think that's the oddest thing? Like, oh, it's so odd. You walk, past, yeah. you walk past people that represent the world you live in on the way to work and then you get into work and it's like carbon copies. So for me, the value is... I want to work in a world or work in a space that reflects the world I live in. Um, And the value of that is that it's real. And the value of that is that you, first of all, don't find yourself in silly places where you're putting out uh, graphics that say coolest monkey in the jungle because oh you are you're clued up enough to like have representation in the room and someone to say that's crazy don't do it but then on um, the other side it means that you'll just you just have this richness of ideas inspiration all of it because you have a diverse range of people talking to you so i think the value is a richness and um, a reality that means that the work you do is more authentic, speaks to more people, is inclusive. And I think it just means it's never going to get boring, you know? 
Yes. So yeah, I think that's probably the best answer to that one. Yeah, I think that we need diverse groups of people, especially doing work like this, because if you're going to be able to create fashion, which is consistently evolving and trends are evolving and you want to like mm -hmm. stay fresh, you need to have a diverse set of eyes to be able to keep up with like how reality in the world is changing and you need to like yes. have that match up. So yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Um, so that's why. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And yeah, my biggest question because I mean, obviously the show is called Brown Girl Green and whenever yeah. I meet someone else who is another brown girl green, I get very excited. And <laughs> I, and I, and for me, I think why I like to invite, you know, diverse leaders, especially, you know, women of color like yourself mm -hmm. onto the show is because I like to learn about your path and how you're able to get past things like imposter syndrome, get past like, yeah, society's expectations, all of these things. And I, I wanted to ask you, how have you asserted yourself as a black woman in the fashion world and having your own business? I I want to know your successes, your struggles, your like motto that drives you like, I would yeah. love that advice you could toss out. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's, oh, it's hard. It's not the worst in terms of, I'm not in a role where I'm risking my life, you know? So I understand yeah. that in a way it's hard, but it's a, it's a privileged hard, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, it's hard because on one side, I'm, I'm painfully aware that I am a rarity in the rooms that I'm in you know I'm going into really incredible rooms and representing my company my race <laughs> at times and all of these things and I feel yeah. a lot of pressure to do a good job in all of these different roles but on the other side I think god there are so many people that would love the opportunity to have this um, platform have and so I feel lucky yeah. and so I'm yeah. so excited yeah. myself I so I think first of all I've always been very honest about what I think and I've not allowed potential stereotypes to derail me so yeah. even though at the back of my mind I'm like oh if I put a bit too much passion in this right if I overemphasize I could be put in this box being xyz black woman I still am who I am you know so mm -hmm. I can't like let this potential stereotypes affect me because then I'll be tiptoeing in my existence and I won't be just being in the room and and I know that that speaks to people because I know so many women of color who are just like oh if I really go in on this and I'm going to be put in this box but you know what if you believe in it and if you believe that what you're saying is accurate then just go in on it because nobody else in that room is and I can't speak for anyone else in that room but I doubt that the other people in that room are like oh if I do this you know they're not monitoring themselves in the same way that you are and it's unfair so just if you need to let it rip then let it rip you know and don't worry about the repercussions in terms of being stereotyped because you'll beat yourself up more for not being who you are and you know it's a stereotype so it's not even real so there's that side of it and then I think another way that I've asserted myself is I've actually said like and, and there have been situations where I've said like I really am best place to talk about this, you know, and that's that. And it's not that your opinion isn't valuable. It's just yeah. that you're asking, well, how might a woman of color do this? And then I'm the woman of color in the room, but you aren't letting me speak. Like, how does that compute? 
So mm. then I have to be like, I feel like I'm best placed. So you have to put yourself out there and say like, I have the insight. I have the experience in this space. I need to have my voice heard. And then I think it's also like when I'm in certain rooms and I see maybe another person of color, I give them the mic, you know? So it's like, I need to hear you speak too, because I very much doubt you're speaking as much as you would like to. So I just, I don't know. There's a number of different ways that you, you try and do it. And I think at the back of every brown person's mind is that whole thing. You have to work twice as hard to be considered as half as good, you know? And it's like this thing that you just grow up with in your head and it's kind of sad, but it's true. It's like, I find myself feeling like I have to go so far beyond like performance um, just to be seen, you know, because if I make a tiny mistake, I'll be penalized twice as hard too. So it's just the work ethic. It's just like, you have to just put like, you have to put like so much more in I feel sometimes oh yeah you know and it's it's tiring but at the same time it's like I strive for excellence so I'm okay with that (laughs) (laughs) oh I have not heard so many words that resonate with me as I did right now in the past five minutes (laughs) oh my gosh it means a lot to me yeah like that's hard man it's hard it's hard and I think it's one of those things where it's like well we're here and we're given the opportunity to be here and to be able to do these things. And we're making it easier for future people to be able to access this path. So they don't have to do as much. So it's like that. Yeah. I just, I like the term future ancestor. Like you're a future ancestor. Like you're leaving your path as you go. So I've never heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like you're definitely a future ancestor for the sustainable fashion worlds. Oh, I love that. So are you striving for? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I really appreciate that advice. I, I, yeah, I loved, I loved that. And yeah, I mean, we kind of already touched on this and obviously yeah. we've already described this, but it's important that we're creating space for black indigenous people of color in the sustainable totally. fashion world. But I want to know, like, how do you think there are some opportunities that we can create more of those spaces for people? I think, I think that's a really good question. And I think maybe it's about uh, looking at the roles of the people we're trying to create those spaces for. So For example, for me, it's about not just focusing on creating spaces for designers, but it's also like thinking what other um, Indigenous people of colour, like what other roles are there where we are heavily occupying this space and we are not visible? So on one side, yes, it's using the platforms that we have. Like, what you're doing interviewing me is incredible. Like, I'm grateful because you're giving me a platform, you know. You're opening your space up to me. And with my work, what I'm trying to do is, like, when we choose talent, for example, like, I'm very, very much about kind of the best talent for the year, but we have more than one space. So it's like we've got the possibility to represent more than one demographic here so you know I was so happy when we had like Lakeith Stanfield and it was a year that he was in Get Out and it was just so amazing when we've had like Priyanka Bose when she was in Lion and it's kind of like if you have the power to make a selection it's not about what I kind of it's not the diversity hire that's not what I'm talking about mm-hmm. I'm saying if you um, have the if option you have- or the power to make a selection and bring someone into a space that is deserving mm. and is talented 
then do that, you know. And I think sometimes if it's a person of colour with the option to hire another person of colour, they feel some type of way, like, oh, like, I've got in. I don't know if there's room for you too. Like, yeah. And it's like, yes, there's room. Yes, there's room. So definitely bring more people in. But the other thing is what I was saying about the role. So I look critically at this. So yes, the designers, that's one side of it. But the garment workers, like, this is mad to me that like literally the majority of garment workers globally are women. And if you look at like, even in Bangladesh, uh, like of the 3 million people employed um, in the garment industry, 85% are women. So we're talking about like 85% of these are women of color. So when you say, how can we create space for them? It's giving them visibility. It's giving them a voice. Like it's not talking over them. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have these, I hate when you have these initiatives where it says, oh, we're doing this to help this group of people. And first of all, they're your allies. Okay. Yeah. So just relax. You're not saving them. Um, yeah. But second of all, they never speak. They never speak. The group you're fundraising for, the group that you're doing this work for, I hardly ever see them speaking. So on one hand, you're saying, oh, we're doing this to help this group, this disenfranchised group. They don't have a face. They don't have a voice. You have a few pictures. They don't have a voice. So when you want to talk about creating a space for Black, Indigenous, people of colour in sustainable fashion, it's also giving the mic over to people like in these other spaces mm-hmm. and letting them speak stop speaking for them mm-hmm. and, and that's so easy we're in a digital age like you know how cool would it be if we went to like a uh, we had a summit or something and you had the head of xyz at nike uh, the head of sustainable corporate social responsibility at nike the um the i don't know the content generator of social blah 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 and mm-hmm. the leader of like the garment workers um, union in Bangladesh, and she's there too. And you've flown her in, like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Wow! Like, yeah. Why not? Why not? Why can't the? Why can't she speak? So I think we don't only have to look at it in terms of like who we're putting on the press release. I think we have to look at it who we're giving animation to like who's speaking and who are we speaking for do we need to speak for them or can they speak for themselves you know so I think like that's probably a big thing for me (laughs) yes yes getting me fired up okay I'm glad (laughs) so yeah I mean you probably already have the answer to this question too building off of that but who are some of the organizations or the artists you've seen creating some of that intersectional content you're talking Mm. about if anything uh and and why do you think their methods are working anyone who yeah I love what you're what you've just asked there's a couple you know I think one of the people that to me I've always just that's really popped up I've paid attention to is um Dominique Drakeford and I think that there's a real like genuine authenticity to what she's doing and it's impossible to ignore and she's doing it in a non-token way it's like it's smart it's relevant she's pulling Mm -hmm. in the right people and so she's a big one for me I think she's not an artist in the sense of but she's kind of an individual that I think is incredible and then I love what um, Abrima and Rosario are doing with Studio 189 because I think they are they're straddling the line you know they're kind of 
made in Ghana predominantly, uh, but then they're working across with the states. They've done initiatives with like Lexus, Nike, Fendi. Mm. So you see like an, an essentially like a Ghanaian brand elevated mm. and being positioned in partnership with like these other organizations, which helps you perceive it in a different way, which which needs to happen these kind of mm-hmm. these kind of collaborations need to happen but it needs to be like mutually respectful and they're doing that mm-hmm. so it's never in the language of like oh we're helping these you know help them weave these baskets it's like no this is like a social this is a business <laughs> you know <laughs> this is a business and we are <laughs> collaborating on a business like it's fantastic so I like the way that they do that I think it's super cool and then they take the language um what we said earlier like they talk about like natural dyes and stuff, which is something that's been happening in the continent for centuries. This is not new. It's just the sustainable fashion movements using it like more, but they talk about that stuff that they're doing and, you know, we've been doing it. That's a good one. And I think, oh, there's one other one. I love the sustainable fashion forum, but I also love, you know, they're just like kicking it. I just think, couldn't believe it when I discovered them. I was just like, I didn't know you existed. Yay. It was like a slow motion run, you know? Yeah. Excellent. 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 Wow. And then Soko Soko Kenya are a good one because, you know, they're manufacturing for like the big, like big, 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 big platforms. Like they're doing ASOS Africa and, you know, they're a B Corp. So they're like killing it with that whole criteria thing. Yeah, those Um, are some really good ones. Wow. Those are good. Those are excellent. And yeah, I mean, I think that we need this to just be like a directory, like people need to just start like flooding in the resources. Yes. Sharing toolkits. I mean, there, yeah, there's a bunch of places that are like, how do you do more sustainable fashion practices? Like there's a bunch of yeah. these things emerging, but I definitely think it needs to continue to leak into the mainstream for sure yes for sure. yeah to, to adapt so yeah yeah that's great 100 wow the hours zoom by so we only have time for two I questions know. from the audience i'm like oh no okay Crazy. so the first question is uh one of my followers asked uh, that you have a tm or like a trademark next to your name and the the brands that you represent yeah uh, and they want to know how do you protect your brand from copycats as you're working to push your work forward on environmental sustainability and what recommendations do you have for founders who want to protect their brands as they scale and grow in the sustainable or social impact space yeah this is a really good question because i spent a lot of time not putting stuff out there because i was worried about getting ripped off when i was Um, a designer for example i was just holding back designs because i was like it's too easy to copy you know i just Um, there's not the right amount of regulation right Mm. now to really i feel like to protect designers for example like all you need to do is make a few changes a few tweaks and you can basically get away with copying or plagiarizing people what I really rely on now is like the power and the beauty of the internet and social because like people are getting called out when they're doing this and I think that's important so yes I've got a trademark for um like the tribe and for Samata 
and I put my content out there and you know if I see things that are kind of quoted by me or that's my work I'll comment and I'll say or oh, can you please credit me or can you please kind of you know credit the source and I've, I've had that happen to me too where maybe I share a quote and I didn't know who it was from and then I've had the person contact me and say do you mind just crediting me for my intellectual property and I was like okay yeah. yes like I do not mind so I think you could get caught up in protecting because you can trademark things and I'm a member of anti-copying and design so mm. when you create something new so if you're a designer for example or if you create a new logo you upload it into their IP database and mm. they have like a team of like lawyers that basically stamp that time and date and so you have an element of protection for what you've protected but we all know how easy it is to share ideas or to take ideas and people, you know, we've seen it happening around us. So I would say don't get too caught up in how you can protect yourself because the world is so wide and so big that it's really hard to police the internet or police the world. But as long as you're just like very dogged in communicating what you do, I think it's something that gets assigned to you anyway. People will start saying, oh, that's that person, that's that person that's the best you can do and then when you do see that you've been kind of ripped off or you um, engage in dialogue ask for credit or whatever the thing is and but know that you probably won't be able to kind of take it to like a completely high legal route because it's so difficult I know it's tricky because it just depends what the business is and so on but I did pay a lot of attention to like IP theft and, and so on and I just realized it becomes so long-winded and convoluted to get justice you know, you almost have to have like it's very deep pockets. And so do the best you can to protect yourself and then just just power ahead. Power ahead, you know, focus on getting your stuff out there. I know it might not be what you want to hear, but like there's there's very little we can do to protect ourselves sometimes, you know. It's just really hard. Yeah. Really, really hard. Yeah. Well, thank you for answering that and I hope my follower will be listening I to this. Know. I'll tell them to check out. Um, tell them to check out anti copying and design because it it really really did help me. And then um, I always kind of just follow on. Um, I think it's the business of fashion. When I kind of search, they've got quite a few great articles about um, yeah. like IP and, and uh, protecting your brand and stuff. So I kind of just try and keep up to date with that as well. Cool. Amazing. And I guess our last question, since we only have time for this, oh, it's going too fast. Do you have a list of like those resources, like the people that you shouted out? For the people listening, I will be releasing show notes. So all the things that were covered in this interview, all the resources and everything she shared, um, I will be putting in the show notes. But I'm just wondering from you, do you have any recommendations on websites or people that they should check out to like start learning about sustainable fashion or BIPOC? Yeah fashion people yeah yes i mean like um so i think uh, i love that i think i mentioned dominique drakeford and they have sustainable brooklyn i think it is so there's some incredible thought pieces on there which are just really really good for keeping up to date on kind of just different areas of interest and so on um and then i mean i'm subscribed to quite a few different um i get kind of alerts for the topic you know so I pretty have like, I have like eco fashion Google alerts, literally. And I'm just kind of constantly, but like, I love the good trade. I love um, Laura Lee Jones's platform as well. Uh, God, it's going to annoy me if I can't remember it quickly. Um, the Front Lash, it's called The Front Lash. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, a good platform for like a really great inclusive coverage of sustainable fashion topics. Uh, so, I mean, I'm following so many. So maybe we can share it after. I'll put a list together. Yeah. And we yes. can share them because I've got so many. 
Yes, that would be so great. Um, yes, please share that list. And yeah, I will. Yeah, you all can definitely follow Samata on Instagram. We will share out oh. social. Yeah, sorry, can also check out Fashion Revolution, obviously. Yes, Fashion Revolution, obviously. Yeah. Fashion yeah. Forum. Yes, yes. They talk about who made my clothes, what's in my clothes. And yeah, when, yeah. just for like very quickly, right before we end, if there's one key lesson you would want someone who doesn't know much about sustainable fashion, but wants to learn something like walking away from this episode, what do you think their first step should be to getting involved? Just pick, pick up a book. So like, um, I read, I read, I read Eco Fashion by Sass Brown on the plane when I was flying to LA trying to desperately learn. <laughs> yes. So I think on my website, I actually had a book of like the top 10 books to read if you're interested. Cause I think reading a book is like, saves all the distractions like a podcast or a book those are the two things to do this podcast um but eco fashion <laughs> eco fashion by sass brown was like the perfect introduction for me it was so digestible like it was not overwhelming so i, I love that amazing yeah. perfect 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 and okay want to just thank you so much for joining the show and i just wanted to say that i think people who are going to listen to this in the future are going to gain a lot of lessons from everything you shared and i think just the wisdom that you have about combining culture and fashion and sustainability is just really innovative and i'm really happy that you are taking up the space necessary to change that conversation. So I, I'm super oh. appreciative of that. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. Thank you for creating this space. Like it's, um, it's important for, for us. So I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode and got some great gems about sustainable fashion and just things to think about when it comes to the environmental and social impact of the fashion industry. And before we go, I wanted to leave you with some quick tips to address sustainable fashion moving forward in your everyday life. So the first is the cheapest and the easiest one, which is to invest in secondhand or vintage clothing. And a friend suggested Shop Thrilling, which is a black owned online thrift vintage store, but I also know of Depop, Etsy, and ThreadUp as good options. But if you all know of other ones, please make sure to circulate that on social media and let people know. And also Goodwill, Salvation Army, great, you know, secondhand stores, which are great as long as you're safe and practicing proper social distancing. And if you don't want to buy stuff from a store or online and you want to just trade clothes with your friends or your family, you can do a clothing swap. So essentially what that is, is you take your old clothes that you're not crazy about and your friends or your family members will do the same. You throw into a huge pile and then you all pick out the stuff you want. And then essentially, voila, you have done a clothing swap. And it's free, it's cheap, it's easy to run. And it's a super fun way to just like have fun with your friends, bake some cookies, watch a cheesy movie. It's a good time. And then, and then if you have more money to splurge, then I recommend you investing in one or two signature pieces from a sustainable fashion brand that you feel aligned with. And a lot of this can vary depending on you know, how much money you're willing to spend, 
if the brand is aligned with your values around caring about their supply chain, social justice, etc. Some of the ones that I would like to recommend are Pildora NYC, which is a lifestyle brand platform that promotes sustainable fashion companies. And I also recommend Ant Hill Fabric Gallery. They're an amazing social enterprise that's focused on zero waste entrepreneurship that is empowering indigenous weavers in the Philippines to design textiles that are used in contemporary clothing. And if you do want to still buy a fast fashion piece here and there, I'm not going to like totally shame you for it, but it's just about thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to buy this fast fashion piece, then I better own it for like several years rather than just throw it out. Because the point is you wanna keep things out of the landfill, out of circulation, and try to not be buying brand new items all the time because you're gonna end up throwing it out and it's just gonna continue contributing to the problem. And outside of all of your individual choices, the last thing, and probably the most important thing moving forward is just being aware of these brands. And I think especially as COVID has hit, a lot of companies, especially fast fashion companies that depend on labor in places like Bangladesh are experiencing really big hits in their numbers. And so a lot of their production has been halted or slowed down. And so a lot of them are losing revenue and have to figure out like, what are they gonna do with all these clothes? How are they going to redefine their branding and their marketing strategy uh, to be able to continue to get revenue and to stay afloat? And so a lot of companies are rethinking their practices and you know, there's a really big opportunity for ethical and sustainable fashion to come to the forefront. And it's up to a lot of us out there that consume and know about these products and know about what companies are or are not doing to actually hold them accountable to that, to take action. And so I really recommend checking out Fashion Revolution and some of the other resources I list in the show notes to figure out ways that you can, you know, tag or send a letter or email uh, a lot of these companies, like brands that you really care about and actually learn about what are their practices around sustainability, around labor rights, and actually ask them about that. And the more that we're able to demand that companies are doing the right thing, for both people and the planet and that there's a driving demand for that and that that is and should be the status quo of how we're producing and consuming our clothing and fashion, I think that things could really dramatically shift. So I think as much as it's important to, of course, shop more ethically, shop more sustainably, it's even more important to address the larger systemic issues related to companies lacking the accountability and the transparency to consumers. And hopefully with COVID and a lot of the transition of the market, we can continue to generate a conversation that puts sustainable fashion on the map. So I hope that you all check out the sustainable development goals related to sustainable fashion. Check out some of the resources that were mentioned in this episode and connect with those initiatives. And I hope that this continues to be a conversation you are able to continue with your friends and family. So keep dressing cute, keep the planet in mind, and keep listening to Brown Girl Green. Catch you on the next episode.